Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Before I begin, I just want to say, you know, um, it's wonderful to have everybody join. It's wonderful to see everyone join. It's wonderful to have everybody here in uh, our space and out there as well, wherever you guys are. Um, yeah, it's just very, it's, 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 it's a joy to have everybody here to worship God together. Um, We've been preaching through, we've been going through uh, the book of Romans for our sermon series, and um, we just we just went through Romans eight last week. Um, I just want to give another disclaimer um, as we begin. Um, yeah, this sermon is 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 a tough pill to swallow. If you come at if you're coming at God with a heart of bitterness, if you're coming at God with a heart of hardness, this 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 sermon is a is a tough pill to swallow. And so, uh, before you watch this sermon, actually, um, or after you watch the sermon, I really highly want to recommend you guys to watch the previous sermon or listen to the previous sermon on the podcast um, of Romans eight because. There's a reason why God takes the exact progression that he does. Um, it's important that we understand the love of God before we even try to digest this sermon for ourselves. Um, yeah, I'm just going to... There's no way to prepare anybody, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, could we open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 9? We'll be going through Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 29. Verse 6 through 29. Romans is after... The book of Acts before 1 Corinthians. Just going to jump right in. This is the word of the Lord. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, um, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and been, become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take this moment with me. Uh, would you just join me in prayer? God, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for the sun shining in. We thank you for all of these resources that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for just everything that you do for us. God, we ask that you would be upon every heart as they are listening to your word. God, that you would provide them with clarity of who you are. God, that we would not get so caught in the way that we think that we lose sight of who you are and how you are. Oh, please, God, be with every person. May we be able to come away knowing that you are good to us, that you love us, that you continue to seek after us, and that you continue to call after us, that you are not a God of hate and judgment, but that you are a God of love. Abba, open our eyes to be able to see. Give us the humility to be able to receive you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Do you guys feel like you know me? Most people here are going to say yes because I've been here almost, it's been three and a half years now. It's crazy been here three and a half years and you know I remember <laughs> um, as I was preparing the sermon uh, one thing that came to mind was I think it was my first senior trip that I ever went on it was um, 
the seniors at the time, they were Austin and Emily and Sheena and Sean and Jason. But I don't think Sheena made it that time. So it was Emily, Austin, Sean and Jason. And I think we were driving back up. I think it was me and uh, Nathaniel was a teacher at the time. And I think it was Austin and Emily in the car with me. And I remember Austin stopping and pausing and being like, how long have you been here, Jane? And I was like, you know, that's a good question. This is like uh, June, early June 2018, right? Uh, back when, you know, a lot of our congregation members were still in high school, uh, extremely young. I know so, I, people who were freshmen back then are now seniors. So it's, 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 it's we, we're living... We're living in a strange world. Uh, but, you know, at the time, I remember Austin still had his, like, boxy, like, I don't, know, I, don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm roasting you right now. But he still had his boxy, like, hair was still... Chad. And um, <laughs> um, I remember we were driving. I think we were... It, it was past... We had done senior, senior, the senior trip in New York. So we had seen different parts of Jersey, New Jersey and Manhattan. Um, and then we were driving back up. And I remember Austin looking to me. I think I was, in, I was either driving or Nathaniel was driving. I think Nathaniel and I were switching off in my car. And um, Austin looks over at me and goes, Gene, how long have you been here? And I was like, you know, that's a good question. Because it, it feels like I have been here an eternity. But how long have I been here? And I was, we were counting it. And I think it was like seven months at that time because it was the beginning of June. I think it was like seven months at the time. Um, no, no, no. Yes, seven months. Um, because it was, it was early June. Um, and I remember Austin going, what? Have you really only been here seven months? And I was like, yeah. He was like, you haven't been here like a year? Like, or like a year and a half? You've really only been here seven months? And I was like, yeah, I've really only been here seven months. I remember Nathaniel, like, under his breath while driving or some, like, while scrolling or something, he was like, that's wild. And I was thinking to myself, that's wild, right? Um, because I had gotten so close to everybody so fast. Um, and uh, while serving um, and while being immersed with one another, it's easy for us to think that we really truly know each other. Right, um, because of the the way that we get to know each other, because because of of love and because of Jesus's love, but um, a lot of the times uh, that assumption is what kills relationships in the end. Not that it killed the relationships of the people in the car. Not by any means. Not not that's not what I'm saying. But um, in the midst of you know us being close and being a ministry and being a family. Um, do you guys feel like you know me? Now that it's like three and a half years down the line, do you feel like you know me? I would say, um, very uncharacteristically, <laughs> you got a lot of you guys do know me fairly well. I wouldn't say fully, but fairly well, which is very uncharacteristic of, of a pastor congregation relationship. Um, that's because I don't know how to keep my own secrets. It's fine though. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're fairly close, but um, I've found often that in relationships, one of the biggest pitfalls is when you assume that you know somebody, right? Um, let me give another example. Like, Songi and I are sisters, right? And I have seen Songi 
pre, I don't want to say pre-puberty, but like I've seen Homie like straight out of high school as this like little girl that was like, she was skinnier back then. Um, now knowing her, I realize how unhealthy that might have been. Um, but she was skinnier back then. And, you know, she had like these curls. She had curls kind of like I do right now. And uh, she like spilled out her guts at me. And then we got really close really fast. And so I've seen Songi through. I've seen, oh, if I've been here four years, I've known Songi for like six, seven years, right? Um, that's crazy. That's wild. Uh, that's actually wild. You were like a pipsqueak yesterday. Um, but I, we are very, very close um, throughout our relationship changing. However, let's say Songi has is angry right now, right? And I walk into her room and I'm like, why are you angry? Okay. And <laughs> I do this thing where I barge in. Um, I won't. I won't barge into your rooms, no worries. But I, I do barge into my little sisters, um, and Amy's. Um, <laughs> um, but I barge in to my little sister's room, whether or not she likes it or not, with the full with the full expectation that she's probably not gonna like it. That she's gonna, you know, give me her her stank face. And you know, I look at her and she's like, "What do you want?" And I'm like, "Why are you angry?" Right. Um, and I can make all these assumptions about how she's feeling, right? But just because I know her really well doesn't mean I actually understand what she's going through in that moment. See, human beings are very fluid. Um, and even in my relationship with you guys, it's difficult. I, some of you guys might feel like I feel closer in some seasons and further in some seasons. Some of you guys might feel like I pull out in some situations and I'm there closer with you in some situations. And I, uh, the reason why I do that is, is because of this. It's, it's the fact that no matter how much I've known you, no matter how long I've been your pastor, I'm never assuming that I do fully know you. Um, that my knowledge of, of the time that we've spent together will actually be able to dictate how, will actually be able to dictate your feelings and your thoughts in this very moment um and that's why sometimes even though you guys might feel like we're very uh, we're very close there might be moments where i take a bit of a step back and that's because i am reevaluating and reassessing who you are and figuring out when it is to get to know you in the present not just assuming that you are the way you were two years ago but um assessing how to get to know you in your different state right now Others of us, we spend too much time together, and I do know you as you are right now. Um, anyway, um, but that's not always the case, and, and it's not really always good to assume that. The reason why I give this long, drawn-out anecdote and shock you with a question of, do you know me? Um, I'm very open, by the way. You can always get to know me. I'm always here for you guys, no matter what, no matter what. No matter what happens, I'm always there for you guys. So you can always talk to me. Um, I won't. I won't bite. But um, but not because I don't bite, but because I'm your pastor. Anyway, um, the reason why I give this long, drawn-out illustration of of us and of you know Songi and I and of you know, the way that I got really close to us in the in, in, to be in the beginning and, and all that is, is because oftentimes when we read passages like this, we assume that we know God and so we get angry. 
the reason why I'm bringing this up before I go into anything else is because I want you guys to really genuinely consider the fact that it might you might be assuming things about God. Um, you might be making assumptions about God. Maybe that God is passive. Maybe that God is angry at you. Maybe that when you do something wrong, that God will always punish you. Maybe that God doesn't always like you. Or maybe that God doesn't like you, but he saved you anyway. I don't know what it is. Um, but oftentimes, it's in passages that are as challenging as Romans 9 that our assumptions about God comes to light. And so just as much as I deal with the content in this passage, I want to challenge us to suspend the assumptions that we make about the character of God and the judgment and the righteousness of God. Okay, so we're just going to jump into the passage now. Israel, this starts off, I didn't read this portion, but, but Paul says, he actually goes off and he says, how I wish I could be cursed for Israel's sake. That's verse 3 of chapter 9. Um, he, he goes into how Israel was blessed and he goes into how he wishes that he would be cursed for Israel's sake. Israel has been blessed, but she is cursed. And Paul wishes he was cursed for her instead. Now, why is Israel cursed? Right? If Israel was called by God and saved by God and chosen by God, not because of her actions, but because of the promise, then why is Israel cursed? Is it about Israel's works? works? All of this is within the quintessential question. What determines our salvation? From what place does God destine and judge people? How does God feel about you and me? Can God really be trusted? A lot of these questions are what's tested in a passage like this one. So the first thing I just want to knock out of the water is the fact that Israel is struggling with their with the salvation is, is not because... Israel isn't chosen. It's not because Israel it's not because God's grace isn't over Israel. It's more because of the sin of selfishness that Israel wrestles with that allows Israel to get selfish about destination and about being chosen to other people. Right? They're like, "No, we're the ones that are chosen." And then to God, "No, God, you should be choosing us." So it's these assumptions that Israel has about God's character and judgment that leads Israel to be in this pitfall of not being a part of the promise of God. So that's something to genuinely consider. First, Israel is blessed, but she is cursed. And one, another thing that's really interesting that Paul says is that he wishes he was cursed on behalf of his people. It's, we forget who Paul is until Paul talks like this. Paul is a Jew. And he cares about his people. We care about being Korean. Or we care about being American. Whatever our ethnic background is, we care about being who we are. Even when we don't like, I don't, I grew up in Woodside and I grew up around a gazillion other people groups. And growing up, I loved everybody but Koreans. Because when you know 
I mean, we've got not just Koreans in our congregation, but I, I, and I'm not making any assumptions about everybody's experience, but I don't know about y'all, but I've got a real love-hate relationship with people that are like me, all right? It's real love-hate, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know some of y'all are like, yeah, Koreans, like, nah, Koreans. Um, because Koreans are, all right, I won't get there. I won't go, I won't go there, I won't go there. But uh, yeah, so, you know, when you, when you, when you know intimately, when you know, you know, your people intimately, then you know what's wrong with them. And for me, I could not get over <laughs> what was wrong with Koreans until I had gotten saved, <laughs> which was 19, y'all, 19. Until the age of 19, I did not like Koreans. Not that I didn't like Koreans individually, but I, I chose not to be in Korean friend groups, for example. Or, um, and when you talk to me, you might not... The fact that I'm Korean-American is not the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, I'm second gen. I'm born and raised in New York. The first thing that you'll notice about me is that I'm a New Yorker, right? <laughs> That's the first thing that you'll notice about me. Either it's because I snap my fingers or because I get excited and I clap or because I, I take my hips and I do this when I talk to you for a, a various number of reasons. The word Korean, if you really know Korean culture and how honorific and how, I don't know, I don't fit in. Um, when you know all of that, like, you, you, you know, Korean is not what comes to mind. You know, I'm just a yellow girl um, that is a New Yorker, right? But... And, and Paul is kind of like that too. He's got his, his character. He's got his, he's sassy. Paul is sassy. Let me take us back a couple chapters to when he said Abraham was as good as dead. When he said that God blessed, that God blessed the world from two people who were so old, they was as good as dead, right? Paul is sassy, right? And you know, I won't go there because I don't want to point it out, but there are some potential curse words in the Bible. Not every word is dignified <laughs> in these letters, let me tell you, right? That's what justifies my, never mind. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 don't curse. Don't cuss. Cussing is bad. Um, it's bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what was I talking about? What was I talking about? Paul, yes. The character of Paul. So in the midst of everything, you might miss the fact that Paul is Jewish. But it's this moment where even though he, he has so much pain about how dumb his people are and how much they completely miss the point of the gospel, right? They studied this for 2,000 years, but they completely missed it. Now, I don't, it's not that I think that Jewish people are dumb. I am putting myself in Paul's shoes. Just to be clear, Jewish people are not dumb. I love Jewish people. I love them. Mazel, don't say that. <laughs> but, um, whoa, whoa, so many errors today. Uh, but yes, it's not me, it's Paul. Paul, even though Paul has all these problems with his people, when it comes down to them being judged by God, when it comes down to them being outside of the inheritance of God, Paul, Paul is in pain. He's in pain about it. 
Um, and he goes into this sin of selfishness and then he goes into the sovereignty of God. That even though Jews continue to think that they are the chosen ones, I am the chosen one, right? Um, that God works in a different way and he chooses whom he wants to choose. So that's why Romans 9 is so scathing. It's partially because Romans 9 is particularly directed towards himself, to his own people. So he does not lay down any punches, right? Um, and he starts off by explaining how God chooses whom he wants in his kingdom. The first thing to note is the children of Abraham. He goes into a historical understanding of how whom God chooses. So there were many more. We don't talk, we know it. We know it, but we don't really talk about it enough. Abraham has a lot more children than Isaac. Not a lot more. He has one more. But that one becomes a whole nation in his own right. Ishmael becomes the whole part of what is more like most likely part parts of the Middle East and modern day Arabia or not Arabia, that's not the proper way to, Arabic countries, a lot of them find their roots in, in Ishmael, right? And so Abraham has other significant children than Isaac. But God allows Isaac to be the child of promise from a woman that, as Paul said, was as good as dead. Um... And then he goes into Rebecca and how God blesses Jacob over Esau. I'm pretty sure this is from my OT uh, knowledge back at, way back, but I'm pretty sure Esau has to do with the word Esau. The significance of that has to do with Harry, how Harry Esau is. And Jacob means he cheats. The name Jacob means cheater. Okay. Y'all know what it's like to be named cheater? <laughs> what does your name mean? My name means gift from God because it was very unlikely the way I was born. And some of y'all have the most beautiful of names, okay? But Jacob was named cheater, okay? And God blessed Jacob. Um, one thing that I want to point out is that God says Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. It's not that Jacob was emotionally invested in it's not that God was emotionally invested in Jacob and emotionally repulsed by Esau. It's, uh, this is the difficult thing. The context of this actually determines that it's, it was God's choice. Jacob, he chose and Esau, he did not choose or Jacob, he loved and Esau, he loved less. The Semitic language of, of that is, is a bit different because it's a translation. Paul is, tra Paul is writing in the Greek, but the original quote is from Hebrew. And so the significance of it is, is from the Hebrew. Um, but what's the difference? What's the difference between Jacob and Esau? Is it that Esau was less of a man than Jacob? No, it's actually quite the opposite. Like I said, the name Jacob means cheater, right? Is it that Jacob was more gifted than Esau? Off of scripture, it is clear that Jacob is more clever. But is that what determines Jacob's salvation? No, because Jacob used that for very dishonorable use. The difference is the promise of God. And the willingness to face God. 
When we think about something like a word like destiny, what do y'all think of? I think of superheroes because superheroes and gods, actually one, one thing that I think of, I realize he's not a superhero, he's a god, is Hercules. I have often dreamed of a far off place, right? Um, if you haven't watched Hercules, go do that. Don't do yourself dirty and go watch it, okay? Um, but when I think of destiny, I think of uh, something like Hercules, right? Where people are destined and, and we grow up with this kind of like hyper, hyper romanticized understanding of, of this, this concept of destiny, right? Some people are destined, you know, you, we see, I also think of Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter, you were chosen for this, right? Um, and there's this like hyper romanticized understanding of, of destiny. Now, the biblical understanding of this is not, you know, oftentimes when it comes to destiny, it goes hand in hand with, you're the only one that can do it. You have been chosen since before for this very moment, right? Um, but when it comes to biblical destiny and when it comes to how God has chosen people in situations, it's not often because you're the only one that can do it. Um, actually, often we see that when a person fails that God appoints somebody else. It's not necessarily about one person's special ability. God can use anyone, but it's often a marriage of being at the right place at the right time. God's, God's sovereignty and our choice. Uh, now, this raises a lot of questions and the rest of our time is probably going to be dealing with questions. You might be wondering, you know, Jane, why does God pick and choose? Why not Esau over Jacob? Why not Ishmael over Isaac? Why does God pick and choose? This leads us to the next part of our chapter. Paul actually addresses this. He says, is God unjust? And then he lays out who God is and And also rebukes us in the process. And I'm just going to get into that in a little bit. First, of, first and foremost, he addresses the fact that God is the person that made everything. My essay is not going to tell me how to think, right? If some of you guys are in classes and you guys are going to have to be writing your essays or some of you guys are creatives and you make your own work, your work is not determined is not what determines what art you cut, what art you make. It's not your work that determines what art you make. It's you who determines what the work is, right? Similarly, it's not your essay that determines what you think, but it's what you think that determines the essay, right? So God is the person who made everything. It's hard to swallow because we like to be in control of our own lives. But the first thing that we must be able to understand in order for this conversation to be able to move forward, is the fact that God made everything. God made everything. The second thing is that God doesn't do things just because he loves us, but he does them because he is good. He receives glory. He does it for, he does it not just because of, not just out of his reservoir of love for us, but because that's just who he is. When you have this question, why does God pick and choose? Is God unjust? 
Consider what you're implying. The first thing, the first implicit premise that you might be implying in your question is that you have a right to normatively assess God's decisions. What I mean by that, that's a, those are two big words. You are assuming that you have a good enough moral standing and good enough intellectual judgment to be able to properly identify whether or not God is morally good or bad, whether or not he is fair or unfair, whether or not he is just or unjust. What I'm saying is that you are putting the gavel in your hands and you are putting God in the seat of judgment. Can your essay judge you? Can your art assess you? Now, we are not creative enough to give our works of creation autonomy. But just because God can do that, does that give us? Just because God gave us autonomy, does that give us <clears throat> the standing Let me put it another way. Do you think I can judge you? I have autonomy. You have autonomy. I have feelings. You have feelings. I have thoughts. You have thoughts. I have dedicated a portion of my life to studying the Bible and you have not. Does that give me the right to judge you? Oh, I, I really hope you answer the right way. The correct answer is no. I do not have the right to judge you. And I cannot assume that I know everything about what you're feeling or thinking. I cannot normatively assess you. Say you killed somebody. Does that mean that I have the right to determine whether or not you deserve salvation? No, I do not. My ability to think and reason does not automatically give me the right to determine your state. Our ability to be able to think and reason does not automatically give us license to judge God. That is the first solid pill, bitter pill of humility that you must swallow in order for us to be able to have this conversation. Because if you genuinely still come out of this thinking that you can do that, then we cannot continue this conversation. Because if you're, if the lawyer jumps off wherever he's supposed to stand, and then all of a sudden grabs, takes the gavel out of the judge's hands and says, well, I say that you're innocent, dang, dang, dang. That's not a fair trial. So we cannot understand who is, stands behind the gavel and who stands in the witness stand and who's standing and who's defending. If we, don't, if we can't agree on where everybody is in this understanding of judgment, then it cannot be a fair trial. 
So if we cannot agree on this, we cannot move forward. The second thing that we would be assuming to say is God being unjust, is God being self-centered, is that God and we, God and we are morally the same. So those two things are different. I know they sound very similar, but the first thing that I'm mentioning is that we have license to judge God. And the second thing is that God and we are the same. Those are two different theological assumptions that you're making about God. That because we're created in his image, God would somehow be like us when it came to judgment. Now, if, if your creation came for your life, what would you do? We have walking, breathing creations that actually we didn't create, but we had a solid hand in creating that's children. Um, I enduringly like to call them little sacks of blood. Uh, but they are not that. They are fully sentient, beautiful human beings created in the image of God, by God, through humans. Um, what if one day your little cute, endearing human, little you, ran up to you and said, You're bad. I think you should go to jail. I, I don't know how to read this culture well enough, but if I did that to my mama. <clears throat> Hi, mom. For those of you guys who will, you know, get through that moment civilly, <laughs> more power to you. Um, I would not, I would not make it alive. That's a, that's a level I've never gone to. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Y'all know what a bell, all right, okay. <laughs> just saying, I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm not assuming, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying there are places that I will not go with my family. I know that there are some families who would get a solid whooping if they ever talk to their parents that way. You know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a couple families here that would get whooped in the butt, right? Um, if you went there, right? Um, my family is also that way. It's not a beaut, anyway. I can't deal with it. Okay. Um, and if you, if you wouldn't do that, then like I said, more power to you. I don't know if I'm there because, you know, because my mama would do that to me. I think if my kid did that to me, <laughs> I don't know. Just the thought of it makes my blood pressure rise just a little bit. And that kid doesn't even exist. So I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Um, now, even to our own creation, if <laughs> our own creation talked back to us, <laughs> it, it, would, it would go down. Mm -hmm. Things would go down. Things would go down, right? Um, and, and, you know, love would also go down. Love sometimes is, sometimes is painful, you know? <laughs> sometimes love is painful. And I think a painful love would go down, right? 
just because we would act like that towards our creation doesn't necessarily mean that God is that way with us. I'm going to switch it another way. We are also creation, just as much as we are creators. And a lot of us have parents. When we say things that our parents thought were out of line, or when we did things that our parents thought were inappropriate, and we didn't understand what we were doing, and our parents whooped us, not assuming that y'all got a whooping, but, you know, the older generation, we function on something different. So, you know, it, you know, anyway, um, if we have ever been yelled at or severely punished um, for doing something inappropriate, and we have this understanding of judgment that way, that when a human being assesses us, that is above us, they will come down at us, they will yell at us, they will be hard on us, harsh on us. Sometimes we can take that assumption, we can put that on God. Because that's the only kind of judgment we've received, right? That's the only kind of discipline we've received. So when we feel like God is being severe with us, our mind automatically goes to the severity of the punishments that we've received in the past, and then we kind of project our parents onto God, right? You are making an assumption that God would operate the way you would or your parents would or your grandparents would. You are making an assumption that God would be judgmental to you because that's what you've seen. You're making an assumption that God's judgment and that his wrath is something that is angry, something that is retributive, something that is hateful, whatever it is that you've experienced or negligent of you, not considerate. God is good. More good than you can fathom. God is a good God. God is a good potter. Given the opportunity, God is a God that chooses mercy over judgment. He cries out and he says, repent. He says, don't you see what you're doing wrong? So that you would be like, I'm sorry, God, because once you say that, he's just itching to hear you're sorry because he just wants to embrace you again and make things right. God is loving to us in an unconditional, unfathomable way because he is good. Not because we are good, but because he is good. If you can accept that about the overwhelming love of God, you must be able to apply that into the judgment of God as well. He will always choose mercy over judgment. He will always choose salvation over damnation. It is us that is sinful, not God. And we must understand the ways that we are projecting our character onto God and assuming that that is how God is. Do you remember what I was saying in the beginning? That assumption is bad? That you should never assume that you know me and I should never assume that I know you. We should, that is what allows us to be able to pause and consider one another. God is also, he, you need to do that with God as well here. You might think you know God because of the father figures and the mother figures and the authority figures that you've seen throughout your life. You might think that you know God after reading a book in the Bible. But let me tell you, as soon as you think you know something about God, you're worshiping an idol. 
You cannot assume things about God. Another misunderstanding about God's destination, predestination, is that we are passive. If God allows something to be, then it's just happening to us. That's not true. I just told you, it is literally the basis of your autonomy, your ability to be unpredictable, your ability to think on your own and come to your own decisions and for those decisions to not be the same case by case. It is precisely the fact that you can make your own decisions, that you are judging God. So then are you going to omit that? All of a sudden, when it comes to God's predestination, do you see what I'm calling out? The ways in which we like to assume things about God and then insert things about ourselves and then take that out for other arguments about God? We are autonomous people that make our own decisions. So when God when God allows something to be, when he is omniscient and he is knowledgeable, and when it says that he foreknew you, don't just assume that bad things are happening to you and that that's because of God. People have agency in this world. You have agency in this world. Don't just insert your agency where you want to and then take out your agency so that it fits your argument. If you are a fully agent human being with free will, that's what you are, period. So yes, God does know things. Yes, God does allow things, but he allows it insofar as he allows our free will. He predestines things. He knows where it's going to go, but he allows you to function as your own person. You're not a robot. Just because God knows everything that's going to happen in your days doesn't mean he has formatted you to be a robot. Also, has it ever occurred to you that God loves everybody? That God still loves people that are dishonorable vessels, that God still loves people. Regardless of everything, God still loves people. That he blesses everybody. That's, that's what I learned the hard way because my friend that passed away is no different than me, right? And so one of the most important fights that I've ever had in my whole life is, God, why would you choose me to be saved and have a second chance at life and not my best friend? This man is a good man. He's a kind man. How can you, how can you allow this to happen? All throughout my life, how can you allow me? How come everybody else gets to have both their parents? What did I do to deserve the pain that I'm going through? And then on top of that, what did, what did he do that you would save me and not him? 
I remember the day that God taught me about him in the middle of my pain. I was forcing myself to open up the Bible. I've told this story before, so if you guys have heard it before, I'm sorry. But it's an important story nonetheless. Um, I dragged myself in front of a Bible for the first time in months, and I opened my Bible up to Genesis 1. And I remember I read the creation blessing, 26 through 28, and God blessed everyone and said, be fruitful and multiply. I don't know what it is about the chapter ones <laughs> that really get me. They got nothing to do with me. But when I read that God blessed creation to be fruitful and multiply, knowing that the next chapter, Adam and Eve would have, it would end up disobeying him and that his son would have to die for it. If God really truly knew everything, you might wonder, if God really truly knew everything, why did he allow for this to happen? My counter question is, if God really truly knew what we would do, why did God create us? If he knew that his beloved creation that he loved was going to act in a particular way, if he knew that the people who hurt you would sin against you, if he knew that you would then leverage that against God, why would God make us? That's painful for him. You see, that's the power he holds. So then why doesn't God just not make us? Because he loves us. He looked at creation and he said it was good. And he blessed man and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Knowing he blessed man to be fruitful and multiply, knowing that man would turn against him knowing that he, his son would have to die an excruciating death, he still chose to have Adam and Eve. He still chose to create them. He still chose to give them the option to live and to choose him. And he still watched Israel crumble over and over. He still allowed, he called out to them for centuries and centuries to return to him. He saw them come back to him when life got hard and then turn away from him when life got easy. He saw them do this over and over again and he still let them live. He still sent his son. His son still died, a full agent, not passively. Christ showed up for us, right? He still did all of that. Christ still willingly, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We can take it one step further. Christ was the Word through which man was created. Christ still allowed for man to be created, knowing that he would have to die. If only man did not exist, Christ would not have to die. That's God. Don't put your standards on him like that. Don't make assumptions about him. That's hurtful. He loves you. How would you feel if somebody that loved you, that you loved, made frightening assumptions about your character? It's painful. I know it. It hurts. Why would you do that? Don't do that. I'm not shaming you for it. I'm waking you up. Don't assume that God is not good just because you're going through a tough season. Don't assume that God is not good just because you don't understand why there are dishonorable and honorable vessels. Why you, just because you don't understand what he does doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden God's love and his goodness gets thrown out the window. 
He is still good. Another question that comes up is, you know, that God hardens people's hearts and doesn't harden people's hearts. That God hardens Pharaoh's heart and he brings up, Paul brings up Exodus. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? It's really just a keeping of the sinful state that man has chosen. It's not that God is actively hardening hearts. He's allowing them to stay hardened. Don't forget this about yourself. Your heart is not soft. Our hearts, they're not soft to God. For those of you guys who might feel like you don't, you don't, you haven't had an encounter with God. Like you know all these things about God and you know that he's good and you've received them for yourself. But at the same time, you feel far from God because you haven't encountered God, yada, yada. Our human hearts are not naturally soft to God. The fact that your heart softens is the spirit. It is a miracle. It is God working. So when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's that God knew the decision that Pharaoh would make. And he allowed it to stay hardened because his people were going to see God's glory. Let me ask you another question. Do you think that God didn't love Pharaoh? I don't think so. I think he did love Pharaoh. Even the way that God brings about the plagues is so compassionate. I don't know if you guys have seen Prince of Egypt. It's my childhood movie. I highly recommend you watch it. Although not all the plagues are accurate, fire doesn't fall from the sky. You should really read God's word alongside it. So it's not, it's not completely, it is pretty dramatized. But um, God can do much more than those. And yet he uses the plagues as an opportunity to foretell the sun. Honestly, the fact that there are dishonorable and honorable vessels doesn't just have to do with God's orchestration. We are not puppets, but it also has to do with our rejection of God. Romans 8.28, we looked at it last week. It says, for in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God uses all things for his glory, but he doesn't reject himself in us for us. Does that make sense? He doesn't orchestrate your rejection of God, but he will use it to bring himself glory. Like I said in the beginning of this sermon, this is difficult. Make sure that you're not making any assumptions about God. Now, how can we apply this into our lives? 
this might bring up a lot of questions for you guys. Well, it's like, because it's, it's hard. When, in order for it to get to the point where it's encouraging, it's going to have to sting. In order for this to get to the point where it's encouraging, it's going to have to sting at you. Because you're going to have to admit that you are not on the same platform as God, that you cannot normatively assess God, and that you cannot assume the worst of him based off of the parent figures and the authority figures that you've seen. seen. But once you can get past that, there is real love in this passage. Because our potter is a good potter that always chooses mercy over judgment and always chooses salvation over damnation. How do we apply this into our lives? This chapter is the beginning of a series of chapters that gets at the question, can God be trusted to do what he says he will? Paul begins to answer the question by saying, he, he fulfills his promise. Because you also have to understand, every single chapter of Romans is important leading up to this point. He mentions Abraham as the child of promise. Take yourself back to chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, where God says, trust him at his word. Attack the lies with the truth. Trust the promises of God. It's not about you. You are not under sin, but under grace. If you believe in him, right? And he's tapping into those values of faith and grace and love here. So given all of these things, can God be trusted to do what he says? Yes, but not just because he loves us, not just because he has given us this promise, not just because he is seeking after us, but because he is good. Do you guys think that Maya can kill somebody? Maya's right in front of me right now. Maya's going, but I think, nah. <laughs> you should see her sometimes. She goes, when, the way she looks at me, I love, I know. Um, I'm not to sound patronizing, but I think Maya is so lovable. Um, I know, I'm announcing my love for you. Um, but it's because I know Maya and I know how good she is apart from our relationship. Because I know how she is and how she gets around children and how sweet her heart is and how soft it is. She's all bark but no bite. Um, because I know that about her already, I know that she wouldn't kill somebody. Or if that she did, she, she would break. <laughs> her whole person would break in two. Maya would just be cut down the middle. It would just, it would, there would have to be some, since some serious breakage um, for something like that to happen. God can be trusted to do what he says. God has given us faith. God has given us grace. God has chosen us unequivocally, unequivocally, without any other prerequisite. Not just because he loves us, because, but because that's who he is. He's just kind and gentle. He's scary because he is very powerful. He's not scary to be scary. He's, it's just scary. It's like you, you shake in front of Barack Obama, not because Barack Obama's a bad man, but because he was the president, right? At some point. He's, 
there's reason to fear him and revere him because of who he is, but or because of the power that he wields, but he himself is very kind and compassionate and gentle. God is a sweet, sweet lion. <laughs> That's why God can be trusted. And it's because he's good that he loves us. He's not good. He's not good because he loves us. It's because he's good that he loves us. The second thing. So the first thing is to dare to believe that God can be trusted. Dare to look at God's character in the face and not make any assumptions about him and ask him hard questions because God can handle your questions. He's good and he can handle your questions. A lot of the times we look at conservative theologians, they don't dare, like a lot of this passage, I've had to do my own exegesis because the commentaries don't dare go there fully. I found that a lot of men in their life, or not men, not to generalize it by gender, but a lot of people uh, don't dare ask God questions because they're scared about the answer. But it's when you can really trust God that you can ask him questions. Because God won't, his, the foundations of who he is won't be shaken by your questions. And the objective reality that he is God and that we all need to accept that. The second thing is that God has called you no matter what. Even when you don't think you deserve it, he's called you. Even when you don't like yourself, he's called you. Even when you don't think that you can do it, he has called you to do it. Even when you don't think that you're good enough, even when you don't think you can make it, even when you don't think you're worthy, he has called you and then that's it. It, it really is not about what you can do or what you can't do, that God loves you. So there is legitimately nothing on this planet that can happen, that can take God away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are his child. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate you from the love of God. It is not based on who you are that your outcome is determined. There are other reasons, like it's not just because God, it, like yeah, you can be over overwhelmed by his grace and love, but this is a very straight up thinking based reason. It's because of who he is. As long as God says God, he's going to fulfill your, his promises to you. It's not based on you. It's not based on the pain you've experienced. It's not based on your life. It's not based on your effort. It, that is a humbling thing. based on God. He will, even if you get knocked back a peg, say in this current season, you don't end up getting the results that you want. You don't end up getting, you don't, you, you have a harder time than you think you would. You feel like you're getting set backwards because you're not doing what you thought you'd be able to do. And you, you hope to be able to achieve this much, but you don't get to achieve that. God will still fulfill what he has promised to you, he loves you, but it's all not based off of just love. It's based off of who he is. Nothing is going to change. Believe in him. It is his sovereign decision that you are his beloved.
And the last thing is, oh no, another thing to consider. Even when you don't like yourself, God has called you. I don't always like myself, okay? I, I actually wrestle with this and I, I, get, I bring it up to my family once a week. I'm like, not to scare you guys, but I bring it up once a week. Like, should I stop being a pastor? Yes, stay still, Christian. Stay still. Um, should I stop being a pastor? I am a decrepit human being. <laughs> Mama, I want to go home. <laughs> um, and I bring it up once a week. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this, y'all. Me and John, not to call out John, but we, we go back and forth. <laughs> if it's a week where he's discouraged, I'm like, John, you can do it. And then I'm like, John, the next week, I'm like, John, I don't think I can be a pastor no more. He's like, Jane, what are you talking about? If you quit, I quit. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> we're just friends. We're just friends. It's it, We're here based on conviction. Um, but <laughs> even when you don't like yourself, even when you're not always down, with who you are, even when you're not proud of yourself, God has called you. It takes humility to receive that just as much as it takes God's love. Even when you've fallen back, you say, God, I'm going to give this to you. God, I'm going to give this to you for Lent. And you fall back, he still called you. God, I'm going to give you this much of my life. It doesn't happen, he still called you. Get right back up and start going to him. Don't let all these lies about what you think stop you from getting to the truth that sets you free. That's it. You keep going. What will heal you, what will allow this promise to continue is God. So hold on to God. Don't overvalue your lies and don't overvalue your thoughts and your feelings to the point where you can let go of the promises of God. It's God. He loves you. He really actually does. He really, really does. He loves you. And last but not least, why do you judge God like that? Don't, oftentimes when we judge God, it often has to do, it says more, it says less about who God is and it says more of the measure of our doubt. Make sure that you're examining your heart. Maybe you're afraid that God won't do what he says he, he will do in scripture. God, I've been in pain once. I'm scared that I'm going to be in pain again. If I trust in you, I'm scared that you're going to leave me. God, I don't want to believe that you are good all the time because what if I do and then you're not, you don't pull through for me? Oftentimes, the way that you are hard on judging God comes from your doubt or your fear that he isn't who, he, who, who that could be because it sounds too good to be true. So make sure you examine your heart. God is always good. He loves you so much. Even as he judges the world, 
even as he knows everything that's going to happen, even as he he has honorable and dishonorable vessels, even as he knows who's not going to come to him, he he does what he always does with compassion and mercy. He doesn't push you, but he is kind and gentle. So turn to him. He isn't who you think he is. And tell you what, he probably hasn't called you out on it because he loves you. All the ways that you doubt him, that can be painful. Imagine telling your parent, Mama, I doubt your love for me. Papa, I doubt your love for me. Heck, we don't even need to bring up parents because parents suck sometimes. Not, not you guys. Not you guys. But parents, you know, they, they are painful sometimes. But if Tony said that to me, I would kill her. <laughs> we don't even have to go. We don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to get to parents. You know what I'm saying? My little sister says that to me. I'm going to be like, okay, come here. Where is the closest thing that is long? <laughs> you know? If, if he hasn't called you out on the way you doubt him, it's because he loves you. I hope you will see his character in the way that he deals with you, in your questions, the way he embraces you. Where are you in your relationship with God? Do you question him? Do you doubt him? Do you believe the truths? Do you shove these questions in his face, expecting for him to fail? What are you assuming about God? What are you not believing about his grace, about his love for you? Some of us come from broken families, and maybe we come before our father as a broken child. But our father is not like you or me or our parents or our families or other people that have hurt us, other authority figures that have ceased to listen to us. God is not like that. God is not conditional. He is not transactional. He does not leave you and he does not forsake you. And that's not just because he loves you. It's because that's who he actually is. Can we take this time to pray? Are you having a hard time trusting God right now? In your life, are you having a hard time trusting that God will do what he says? Can we take this time to lift up our doubts to the Lord? Let's lift up prayers to God, asking for more faith in our hearts to be able to receive him, to be able to believe that he will do what he says he will do, to believe that he does in fact love us. 
let's just take this moment to pray. If you guys are having a hard time believing, if you guys are having a hard time with these questions, with this passage, would you open up your palms at your, at your laps? Just open up your palms and lift up these prayers to God. Lift up, you know, God, I'm having a hard time understanding. Help me to believe that you are loving. And help me to acknowledge you for who you are as a God of power. And that that God of power is not against me, but he is for me. Let's lift that up and let's pray. Let's pray. Lift up your own prayers and your own wrestling to God. From wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.